And with me today is Beth Dunford. She's the head of the Bureau for Food Security and AID and the deputy coordinator for, 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 for the, I, I used to Deputy coordinator for development. Ambassador Garvelik used to have this job before. I can never Repeat remember the, the, the full mm -hmm. title. But as you've seen from the announcement, Beth has had a long career in AID. She served in Ethiopia, uh, Afghanistan. She was the aid director in Nepal during a tough time with the earthquake there. And she was the development advisor uh, for the special uh, envoy for Afghanistan and Pakistan at the State Department. So she has lots of experience, uh, particularly in the, the food and agriculture sector. And we're very pleased that you're here. So we'll turn it over to you. Great. And Thanks. Um, well, I'm a little bit humbled to be here with Ambassador Garvelink. I, I grew up in USAID. Uh, uh, when Ambassador Garvelink was leading uh, one of our most important bureaus and um, was able to host him out in the field um, when he came out to Ethiopia during a really important food security crisis in Ethiopia early on in my career. And I remember um, learning a lot, as I always did when I, when I came into contact with Ambassador Garvelink. And then later, um, I worked more closely with him again when he stood up uh, the Bureau for Food Security and really helped launch Feed the Future, which is U.S. government's global hunger and food security initiative. So I think um, really there's a lot to be learned, uh, more to be learned from Ambassador Garveling perhaps than myself. But I'm, I'm excited to be here today to, to share um, some thoughts that I have with all of you. Um, if I, I guess it, it took me a while to really figure out what development was and to become involved with it. And I feel um, like one of the luckiest people um, on the planet to be able to spend my life working in development. Um, I grew up with two much older half-brothers. One was career State Department, and one was a career NGO guy doing microcredit out in the field. And so USAID is kind of a, a hybrid of, of both of those. So um, I, feel, I feel really fortunate to be here. Um, I started out on my first experience, aside from growing up with my brothers, who, um, you know, of course, came back with tales of yore wherever they were traveling at the time. But I started out in the Peace Corps, which I think is a, a really important thing to think about. Um, living in a village for two years gives you an understanding. I always say really understanding what it's like to be in a village, get that feeling in a, your bones, because I think it's a, it's a really different, um, it's, it really shows um, how life is for people who live on a really different scale. I think so um, that for me was a very, very formative experience in my life. And um, a after having spent three years in rural Morocco as a health education volunteer, um, I knew that I was hooked and that I wanted to work on development at a, at a broader scale. Um, uh, Peace Corps is really great because you work at that very grassroots level. You are with the people you're touching every single day. Um, but again, it's something that happens at a very, very small scale. And I think, you know, as, as I grew, I sort of wanted to be able to impact things at a larger scale. And that's where USAID really comes in. Um, coming in where you're working government to government, setting up broad systems um, to move change um, for millions of people um, rather than just maybe the two or 300 that you might be working with in your village. So I think for me that was the progression. Of course, when I was in Peace Corps, I looked at USAID people and said, oh, they don't really understand what's going on here in the villages. And, you know, they spend their time in, uh, in different office buildings and they don't really know what, what people out here really, really need. And I think, I think that um, there's an element of truth to that. I think it's really important to always remember you've got to get out there and really um, interface with people in the field to make sure you know what's going on. But I think there is an ability to sort of impact systems, governments, um, at, at scale that I think you have with a place like USAID. So I think it's an exciting um, way to go and glad to see so many of you here that are super interested in that. Um, throughout uh, my career, I, um, I started off working in Ethiopia. I think that's when I first encountered um, Ambassador Garvelink when he was Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance Bureau. Uh, back then it was just the Bureau for Humanitarian Response. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, so we were in Ethiopia. I was working under a legend named Tim Shortley, um, who, um, who anyway, so we, we were the Food for Peace officers. So we were responsible for delivering emergency food aid um, to, it was about, it was 14 million people who uh, needed emergency assistance during one of the biggest drought crises 
uh, that had happened. So we mobilized a million metric tons of food um, that we got out to people and also with um, sort of um, targeted health interventions and nutrition interventions and egg recovery interventions. Um, anyway, so again, that's Ambassador Garvelink's very strong background and it'd be interesting to hear his perspective on how the humanitarian space has changed. But that's how I started out. And then coming out of, the, uh, coming out of that very, very difficult food security situation, USAID and also the government in Ethiopia really said, we want to do something different and started working on what we call the Productive Safety Net Program, which was to say, look, in Ethiopia, we know every single year there are uh, at least, even in a good year, 8 million people who don't have enough to get through the year um, that are going to need emergency assistance. And it's really not an emergency if you're doing it every single year. So let's plan differently, be more efficient, be able to get these people their resources in advance so they can actually plan with it and protect their assets in order to be able to not fall, fall further back into poverty. And so that was sort of really looking at how do we get people transitioned off this emergency assistance program. So that was a really formative process. Um, and then I went to Afghanistan where I worked. I was an, just a, I was an agriculture officer. And during a, you know, an important period in Afghanistan's history, we worked on really rebuilding Afghanistan's agriculture. Um, and uh, anyway, um, so I think that coming back to, uh, well, let, first of all, let me just also say that um, another really formative experience for me was to be in Nepal um, during the earthquake in 2015 and um, just experience sort of the very, very important work again of OFDA and OFDA, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and the broader humanitarian arm of USAID come in and really provide emergency assistance very quickly in a time of great need and um, work on the rebuilding of um, the rebuilding of Nepal, really be able to get development investment in to help people recover after the initial emergency response needs were there. Um, so I've been working on and off on Feed the Future since 2009, which I think is when Ambassador Garveling uh, joined it. And for me, it's, it's a really important initiative because it, it takes us to sort of investing in the root causes of poverty and hunger, um, where, whereas I think it's super important to be able to come in and respond quickly, and USAID is some of the best in the business on this front. Uh, I really was excited to be able to work on the root causes and help people invest in their livelihoods in order to be able to um, graduate themselves out of poverty and, and more to self-reliance in, in their communities and their countries. Um, having been with this since the beginning and building it, really recognizing where we are today in 2017 versus where we started is huge. Uh, we at USAID had, we had just quit investing in agriculture. Um, basically, I think uh, understanding that after the Green Revolution, oh, everything um, is all taken care of, we can just check agriculture off the box and move on to other things that were deemed to be more important for investment. But I think that what we saw in the global food price crisis in 2008 uh, was it was at a time when um, prices for basic foodstuffs around the world uh, increased dramatically. Uh, you saw people suffering greatly, millions of people falling back into poverty, millions more people um, going hungry. And you also saw conflict arise in many, many different countries around the world where people were suffering from this increase in their staple foods. Um, is you find that it, sort of poorer populations spend a greater proportion of their income on food. And so when food prices fluctuate dramatically, those are the people that get, get squeezed the most. And, and you know, you heard about it. It is a, it is a security issue when you actually um, look at the number of conflicts that came out of uh, just that one crisis. And, you know, of course, the, the connections are, 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 very, are far and wide. Um, so through this investment, we've really come to re-engage our agricultural expertise, our programs, getting to engage with countries um, who are investing their own money um, in agriculture, um, seeing that since the beginning of Feed the Future and the countries that we've worked, our targeted countries, you've seen an increase of $795 million a year being invested by these countries in agriculture. So really getting those systems working um, on all fronts, on government side. Another really important part of that is getting the private sector uh, engage investing in these places that um, they haven't really invested in because sort of it wasn't that easy to operate in. They didn't have the right policy environment. They didn't have the right infrastructure. 
and really seeing what we can do in partnership with countries to get policies right that foster private sector engagement in the private sector um, and also get the infrastructure right uh, to allow those businesses to flourish. So through these investments, we've been able to realize that we've seen a 19% a drop in poverty in the areas where we've been working and a 26% drop in stunting, which is a measure of chronic malnutrition over many, many years. So I feel like that's a very, very positive, I feel really proud that we've uh, invested in this and that we've really been able to see the results of it. Um, and we're really excited that the Feed the Future initiative has weathered the presidential transition and that it is still ongoing within the Trump administration. Um, I think in no small part due to the passage of the Global Food Security Act in 2016 that showed strong bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. This is in a period where we don't see a lot of agreement <laughs> um, from both parties right now on this issue. There was a lot of agreement. We need to be supporting our efforts to end global hunger. Um, and so strong support from Congress for budget and also the administration is also taking up this issue. So we're excited about that and we're excited about going forward. Um, so before I close, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how I think development is different from when I started. And if you really want to get a perspective, Ambassador Garvelink should be weighing in on this because uh, he's been at this for far longer than I am. And well, I think not we. That much. Oh, not that much longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, development has really changed since I entered in, into development. Um, again, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the early 90s, but I didn't get into U.S. I didn't join USAID until the two th early 2000s. And so um, just since that time, development has dramatically changed, recognizing that when USAID started, about 80% of the official development assistant, 80% uh, of the American resources flowing to other countries overseas was from official development assistance. That's either USAID or maybe another agency, but it was is very much official donor assistance to other countries that was helping them with their development efforts. If you look at that number now, it's only about 9% of official of the resource flows going from the US overseas to the countries where we work is coming from official development assistance. So that doesn't mean that our assistance has gone down. In fact, it hasn't. But the, there's been such a surge in resource flows coming from either um, remittances or mostly the private sector or big foundations. And so we're a very small part of the solution now, which is good. This is what you need for sustainability. Um, really what you need are governments to be taking on their own development issues and resourcing them with their own capacities to be tackling um, these development issues. And then the private sector to come in and be investing in these small and medium enterprises and input supply dealers, whatever you need to have your agricultural economy start to really flourish. It's this private sector investment bolstered by a good enabling environment from the, from the public sector that's really gonna make a difference. So if we're looking at the kind of skills that aid officers need, I think it's really changed a lot since Ambassador Garvelink and I joined um, and really needing to focus a lot more on that private sector engagement. Um, so anyway, with those, those thoughts, I'll just turn it over to Ambassador Garvelink. Well, I, um, we'll open it up to questions. And as you think about uh, questions to ask Beth, I'll, I'll start out with, uh, one, with one on uh, the Feed the Future uh, related issues. And could you talk a little bit more about your, your links with the private sector and what kind of activities you've had going on with them um, that sort of characterize the new relationship? Great. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I think we, we work with the private sector basically in everything that we do, recognizing first and foremost that agriculture um, is a private sector enterprise. And so even the smallholder farmers that we work with, they're business people. And so I think just starting from that mindset is the first stop. Secondly, um, there are large private sector companies in the U.S. Um, that we partner with to provide technical assistance and to provide technologies that farmers need. What we bring to the table really are networks of farmers that we are engaged with. And for example, we have a partnership in Ethiopia with DuPont, and they bring some of their latest technologies on seeds and other sort of processing technologies. 
um, to the table, and we've organized about 250,000 farmers that are working uh, with DuPont to get um, these technologies, to get improved seeds, and then when the farmers are finished growing, they have a ready market for offtake of their product. And so I think this is the kind of partnership that we're really looking at. Um, how do we each bring something to the table that we both need um, for a win-win? Um, we really want to move it beyond sort of the corporate social responsibility, which I think is important. I think companies are recognizing um, that they do need uh, they do need these sort of um, social investments, but also where do we get it? Sort of where's their core um, business interest lies, and how can we help incentivize them to take that to some of the countries we're working in? Um, we're partnering with private sector to get better technology to farmers in Guatemala, so they can meet increasingly stringent traceability requirements. Um, so this green pepper that was grown on this farm in the hills of Guatemala helped this farmer be able to meet requirements so this pepper can be traced back to this hill and this farmer in Western Guatemala as they want to sell it in the global market. So these are the kinds of things, bringing technologies, bringing, bringing private sectors together with farmers at all levels. Just and as a reminder, state who you are in your affiliation as you ask questions, so uh, we all know who you're, where you're from. Yes, just wait for a microphone, please. Um, hi, my name is Elise Green. I'm from the Global Health Policy Center here. I'm an intern. And as someone looking into grad programs in the near future, I was wondering what your thoughts um, are and really valuable, which programs would probably be the most valuable in terms of finding a job in inter international development in the future. Mm. Interesting question. I mean, I think there are so many different options. There's, um, you know, finding the technical sector that you really want to work in and finding a graduate program in that if you're working in health. A master's in public health is always a really, really good idea. Um, I work with many people who are technical Aggies. Um, I think that's really important, but it depends on sort of what sector you want to engage in. I do think that um, more and more we're seeing master's MBAs uh, be very, very central to what we're doing in development. So I think that there's a really a broad range of things that you can do. Um, I think it's important to get sort of that, figure out where you want to end up and getting that skill in order to get there, but um, public policy degrees, um, I think MBAs are increasingly um, important, but I wouldn't move away from, I wouldn't discourage, I would also encourage people to really think about very, very technical um, degrees that's, that are, that's really gonna give you a leg up for having that kind of experience and background that people want. I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, just uh, from, from my experience, I think, uh, more and more an MBA is, is important. Um, it, it, you know, it's interesting as there's a shift in, uh, as you were saying, the resource, resources being provided are yeah. going up. Yeah. And it, it's interesting that um, there's an emphasis on working with local communities and local organizations. At the same time, Congress and our donors are being much more focused on how we manage our money and manage our programs. Yeah. So and in a sense, it's, they're, going in two different directions, working more and relying more on local organizations. At the same time, you've got to know where every penny goes, and you've got to monitor it, and you've got to audit it. And I, in fact, in, I'm sitting in and working with an NGO, NGO now, and I'm doing compliance work for them, uh, which is not something I ever thought about during my career. Mm. But it is a very big thing now because of the, the dollars and the monitoring that's going on. So, some, if not an MBA, some management courses along the way come in handy. I certainly wish I would have done that. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, my background is history, which is a, is a fair distance from compliance and, and audit. But I think those are important fields uh, to at least be familiar with and have some knowledge of uh, as you get into the development business, regardless of what, what sector you're interested in. There, and then we'll... Hi, uh, Bharat Ram with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm an intern as well. Um, I kind of have a question about your work, kind of the future of health and how health has been changing. Um, recently, it's been reported that like 
um, NCDs are becoming an increasing problem, especially mm -hmm. in developing countries with obesity and diabetes, and that's becoming an increasing concern. Um, so does food security in, at USAID and other organizations, are they starting to look into that aspect of food security rather than just malnutrition, but also obesity? Is that a problem that you are working on or that you see in the future to be a big issue? So thanks, that's a very important question, one that is very hotly debated in the Bureau. Uh, malnutrition actually is both overnutrition and undernutrition. Um, and so, in, anyway, but there's, there's a lot of, there are more um, overly nourished obese people um, than there are undernourished people. But I think that um, the discussion is, wh who are the types of people that we wanna be targeting going after? The poorest of the poor, what are their nutritional issues? And we're finding that, of course, the target population we're looking at, um, their biggest problem is still undernutrition or not having the right types of nutrients to really balance out their diet. But what you're seeing is increasingly a link between undernutrition and overnutrition. For example, in a place like Guatemala, where stunting in the Western Highlands is at 60%, which is akin to, I mean, it's worse than many places in Africa. It's just crazy given sort of the economic um, situation there. But you're finding um, that quickly undernutrition in early life is quickly leading, leading to overnutrition um, amongst even the poor population, poor population living in the rural areas. And so I think that it's still under debate, but it's clear that this is a trend that increasingly we're going to be dealing with in our programs going forward. So, mm -hmm. hi, uh, Sandra van der Voort. I'm a program associate at the Osgood Center for International Studies, and you talked a lot about the future of public-private partnerships um, with regards to development. I was wondering if you could maybe expand a little bit on the role of NGOs and the nonprofit sector. If you see that there also will be a bigger role for NGOs in the future of development. Or not. Yeah, I, I, um, it'd be interesting to get your take on that. Ambassador Garverling is now with an NGO, of course, has worked with NGOs throughout his career. I think NGOs will continue to be very, very important. I think that the role that NGOs play um, has started to shift and will continue to shift mm -hmm. to that of capacity building for either bringing together things like farmer groups into farmer organizations to build the capacity of um, governments um, to help bridge sort of the public-private sector divide that happens. And so I think the role over time is starting to shift and will continue to shift, but I, I don't see a, a world where NGOs would not be important. I think also the voice of civil society, uh, local NGOs, um, building their capacity to engage in the broader development dialogue I think is super important. What we're seeing is a lot of these um, fora that used to be government only are now increasingly pulling in the private sector and the NGO sector, the civil society sector, to really get a broader voice at the table. You, and, um, there's the Comprehensive Ag African Agricultural Development Program, which is an African Union-led effort on agriculture. Um, and it started out as being uh, really just governments speaking to governments. And now, uh, over time, a lot of advocacy on our part, really, uh, they're bringing a, a broader set of inclusive players to the table, which I think is, is game-changing. So I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, uh, from my perspective, I always thought of when you're looking at providing assistance, if you want to do something countrywide, you're almost dealing government to government or with the United Nations or yeah. uh, a large organization. But if you want to work at the community level, the NGO is the best equipped to do that. Yeah. And that's what their specialty really is. And that's really important. And I think uh, sometimes when uh, organizations come up with um, you know, these grand ideas, uh, uh, you know, a lot of technology innovation and all of that, that's sort of ignoring the community level. You've got to go down and talk to the folks at the community and see what they need, and their needs may be much more basic than that. And, and I think uh, the NGOs are best equipped to, to represent that, facilitate that, work with local, uh, you know, local communities. And I think the, uh, uh, as well, um, for, I think a lot of private sector companies uh, particularly in the extractive industries that I've dealt with, rely on NGOs to, to provide their assistance to yeah. communities. Um, because it, it is, to get beyond the corporate social responsibility. It's interesting if you talk to, I probably shouldn't say this, representatives of, 
extractive industries here in town that work with Congress, corporate so social responsibility, that's, you know, they're pushing that. It's 100,000 here, a couple hundred thousand there. Then you go to the field and talk to the representative of that company who runs the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, con the program in that country. And I say, forget about that. We're, we're you know, most, most corporations are interested in a lot of the same things AID is. They want a healthy, yeah. educated workforce. Yep. A uh, workforce that will probably become consumers of their products eventually. Yep. And say, look, we're, we may have different end games, but we, we, we have a very convergent, uh, uh, convergence of interest uh, right now. And we've got to work together on that. And they spend hundreds of millions of dollars in that country. Um, it's not the small stuff that comes from the, the folks here, here in Washington. So the NGOs play, you know, always, there's a lot of talk about the last mile to get to the, to the recipient. NGOs, whether it's through the private sector or through donor governments or other organizations, they're the ones generally doing the last mile of assistance, I think. Mm -hmm. Wilcox, Osgood Center. Um, so just a quick question for you, Beth. For the 2008 local food crisis, sorry about that, local food, how did uh, USAID respond to these conflict situations? Did they more through a development aspect or did they play some kind of security role? I mean, uh, let's refer to an organization such as Search or Common Crowd. They do conflict mediation, something along those lines. Does a development agency like USA take role in conflict mediation? Um, so there are times, uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, I, that wasn't the role of USAID. I mean, there would be emergency response and then really looking at sort of addressing some of the root causes. Again, the, the causes of conflict are, are are big. There's lots of different issues going on. There's definitely di diplomatic and political um, engagement that has happened at the first and foremost, and I'm going to let Bill talk here in a minute. But we were really um, looking at saying, okay, food insecurity is a big issue globally. How do we go at the most food insecure places and build the development program? Um, switching gears a little bit, when I was mission director in Nepal, Nepal is coming out of a uh, decades-long civil war, two decades-long civil war, where we did do a lot of work at um, conflict mediation in rural areas and places where there had been a lot of um, um, violence on both sides, a lot of um, simmering conflict that still was uh, existent after the peace accords had happened. And so we do play that role at a local level, engaging NGOs to do that conflict mediation. Um, often in many, many parts of the world. So I don't know if you have anything else. Well, not really. I think that's, that's I think if you're gonna do, uh, deal with conflict issues, um, you need all parts for, for the US yes. government, all parts of the US government engaged. You need the diplomats from the State Department, you need development and humanitarian assistance, and if you get past the point with some of the violent extremist organizations that are active now, uh, you need the military to, to weigh in yeah. with their programs. And really, you can't do one without the other in a lot of these. But I think a lot of people underestimate the, the importance of food security in particular um, in the origins of, of some of the disputes that go on. I mean, if you go back to the war in Syria, you can trace the origins back to food shortages and missteps by the government in addressing the needs of agriculturalists in Syria. And that has blossomed into demonstrations where the government reacted violently, and it just went from bad to worse. And, and now we're years and years into this conflict that uh, heaven knows when it will end. So I think the underlying causes to a lot of these are, are food-related. And uh, it's, it's much more important in minimizing and dealing with the, the, it fuels the ethnic tensions and the political tensions between different groups. And you could minimize a lot of the internal conflicts, I think, if we address these, these basic causes. And that's basic assistance uh, and, and health care as well. That's your question. Let, let me ask one. I, I, I have to, because when I was dealing with food security, it was coming up, and I'm, it, it has continued. How, do you, how are you guys addressing and dealing with genetically modified Oh, interesting. Uh, food. Actually, the, that's a huge question right now um, because 
Right now, so genetically modified crops, it's a very big hot button issue. Most countries in Africa, for example, except South Africa, and now I think Uganda is right on the cusp of approving a biosafety law that would allow genetically modified food. But generally, um, not accepted, a lot of distrust in a lot of the countries we work with, and the Europeans, of course, um, will not accept crops that are genetically modified from a lot of countries, so there's also a trade issue. So. Um, Right now, there's been an outbreak of the fall armyworm. This is uh, a worm that can cause between 35 and 60% devastation um, of crops. Um, it is endemic uh, to southern US and also Brazil, and has been for many, many years, and has now disappeared in Africa, and it's just like growing, like it's just going like wildfire. It's sort of on the march across the continent, and it's in, I think, like over 70% of the countries in Africa right now. Um, fall armyworm is really difficult to treat uh, because even just to spray pesticides, you have to spray it at the right time and use the right ones. They become very, they become pesticide resistant very, very quickly. They also like, they burrow into the center of a plant. So if you go and spray after the plant has grown around it, then you can't get to the worm because you're just spraying the plant. Um, so just looking at what types of pesticides work, what types of biopesticides there are out there, what other sorts of uh, natural biological controls would there be for the fall armyworm? There's a lot of uh, discussion and debate. It's really difficult to treat here in the U.S. Um, and in Brazil, uh, even though we have very strong infrastructures and extension systems and delivery mechanisms. So in Africa, one of the key ways, sorry, here in the U.S. and Brazil is that we have genetically modified insect-resistant uh, crops. And basically there's this bacteria that's, that's insect-resistant that's found naturally in the ground. What they do is they sort of insert it in the gene of a crop, and the crop as it grows then becomes insect-resistant. So it's a natural biological way to make these crops insect-resistant. So, um, or fall armyworm-resistant. And so, you know, there's, there's, it's just bringing up this GMO debate uh, uh, front and center. Uh, we, um, as the U.S. government, there's, there's different views in different parts of the government about uh, how our, what our policy should be trade-wise and biotech. We at USAID, on a development perspective, very much follow countries' lead on, on something like biotechnology. And so if there are countries that say, we don't accept biotechnology, then we accept that. Uh, what we do, though, is help to provide um, information analytics so countries can make their own science-based decisions around um, something like biotech and other issues that impact their policy. So does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I, I think, I mean, it's interesting. Like right now, Uganda has passed a biosafety law. It's passed both houses of mm -hmm. parliament, and it's ready to be signed by the president. So it'll be interesting to see if fall everyone is going to be something that pushes a couple of countries over the edge and see, see what happens. Do the Europeans, is there any crack in their approach to, because I remember years ago I was at a conference um, in the UK uh, with a lot of scientists, and uh, the, the, they were German and French, yeah. and they were saying, well, you know, hopefully our, the public comes along with us. Yeah. This genetically modified stuff is great, but they don't like it. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of scientists have moved to the US and Canada where they can do research. Right. Where other places in Europe they can't, and in, and in the UK there's one farm I think where you can do research on this, and that's it. So they've lost a lot of their scientists to moving here. Yeah. And so it just seems peculiar that the public doesn't uh, at least pay attention to its scientists. I mean, I think it. I think it's something like this. It might take a crisis to sort of get people to think differently. For example, um, right now we have gained. Um, permission to test genetically modified water efficient maize, okay? And so there are six countries in, in Africa. One is Kenya, one is Tanzania, I can't remember the others. Um, but they're actually doing field tests. You're not allowed to sort of grow it and sell it and you know whatever yet, but these field trials are accepted. And this water efficient maize, it has some insect, uh, some fall, armyworm, fall armyworm resistant characteristics. It's not the gold standard, but it, it does have some, and plus it's, it's very good in water-stressed environments, um, so which is revolutionary for a lot of the places where we're working where you know, things are changing over time. 
And so um, farmers are seeing these plots and saying, well, wait a minute, how come that's growing? How come over here I'm getting decimated by fall armyworm, you know, drought, all these things, you know, I want some of that. People are saying, oh, no, no, that's genetically modified. And the farmers are saying, well, wait, I don't care. You know, just get me that kind of seed. So I think, I think things are starting to shift a little bit, but we'll see. Good. Ah. That started some discussion. Yeah. And then we'll come up here. Hi, Baral from again. I have a quick question. Um, there's a lot of talk in global health about creating a common like health infrastructure um, to address all like, multiple diseases at one time rather than just a single one. This is especially prominent with infectious diseases. Can food security programs work along an inf infrastructure like this? And if not, how can USAID or other food security programs work with other organizations to address multiple health issues in a region at a time? Does that make sense? So, Again, food security is agriculture and it's nutrition, right? So, um, and nutrition is a very sort of complicated, multi-sectoral issue. You may know all of this already. So in nutrition, there's sort of, there's these sort of clinical, like health behaviors um, that came out famously in this 2008 Lancet study, you know, breastfeeding, you know, vitamin supplements, boom, 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 the things that you could do to really uh, um, improve nutrition during the first thousand days. So a lot of that is very clinic-based and connection with clinics. And so we build on the, the broader health infrastructure. A lot of it was built through PEPFAR money, you know, whatever else. So I think that, I mean, it's just great that the health infrastructure has come up with um, pulling that all together. A lot of it is really agricultural field-based, like, you know, are you eating orange flesh, sweet potatoes, or other really healthy diets? And so we're using these health professionals and a lot of these community health workers, frankly, to be pushing those same types of messages. So yeah, we build on that infrastructure. I think that um, there's differing views on sort of agriculture extension. Uh, do you have a very sort of expensive and uh, complete, with complete coverage extension system that's government run to get you know, farmers the right seeds, the right information about what to plant and where and things like that. Um, we, um, we, we think that there's a good place for government extensions, those types of infrastructures to be built, but really it's in the end, it's the private sector, these small ag depots, some of them are connected with larger seed companies, to really have a private sector model to get this information out to farmers, because again, farming is, is a business, even at the smallest level. So I think there's some sort of combination of public and private um, effort that is, is most useful. There are exceptions, like Rwanda and Ethiopia, you've got governments driving a sort of very state-run um, extension service for their smallholder farmers, and it seems to be working pretty well when you've got the massive amounts of resources and the sort of infrastructure to do it. Um, um, but building on, building on health infrastructure, I think, is a really good way to make sure that people are eating the right types of foods, but whether or not they can be out there delivering farm inputs, I don't, I'm not sure that's gonna work, but I don't know, do you have any yeah, No, go ahead. Hi, Steve Wright, retired captain, United States Navy. Um, a couple of questions. Uh, risk aversion is going to, is preventing public investment or private investment in fragile nations, yep. in conflict areas. Uh, how is USAID modifying its program in those particular regions? And does DOD have a role, or how does DOD have a role in food security programs? in those fragile nations mm -hmm. or in conflict zones? Um, so, I mean, first of all, you know, interestingly, Boko Haram, for example, I, I mean, as you, as you know, Mercy Corps just did a study uh, that showed that um, the number one recruitment tool by Boko Haram was financial services, access to financial services, really giving these rural youths, you know, a loan or a grant in order to have them join the organization. So I think the, the importance of the types of programs we're working on that are sort of agricultural base, which are, uh, that's working on rural poverty, um, are critically important. So how do we operate in these dangerous areas? We have programs up in northeastern Nigeria on the margins of the conflict areas that are doing really important work, Mercy Corps is one of them, to give people an alternative to this grant or a loan from Boko Haram. And we're starting to see real impact. Um, 
now, again, uh, whether or not you want to have DOD directly involved in those, I think really they have security platforms that our partners use sometimes when needed. Um, Bill can talk a lot about this. Um, sometimes they've got money to build certain types of infrastructure that are super useful. Um, I think engagement with the military in these types of areas is is a tricky thing. We can't do it without the military, but again, whether you want them in directly invested in the programming, I think that's something we usually try to keep separate. Um, but of course, you know, I worked in Afghanistan where I wouldn't have been able to get out to my programs were it not for, um, were it not for the provincial reconstruction teams taking me out in their Humvees to get to the sites. But any other? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, one of the things that I think we have seen over time is the risk aversion of, of a lot of organizations. And as a result, you see more remote management, uh, where yeah. I know our organization has a lot of programs in Somalia, but our, our team running those are, are based in, in Nairobi, and they go back and forth. And so um, it's harder to manage your programs and work your programs. And early on, we actually partnered with uh, Turkish organizations that were set up in Somalia and were able to uh, uh, you know, move around much much easier than than our folks, and uh, until they got blown up a little bit a year or so ago, and they, they have their own problems with that. But I think it's again, it's a mixture uh, of how you deal with these the, the the situations. One of the things that strikes me is you have a, a really burgeoning, particularly in Africa, youth population, mm -hmm. and they're dissatisfied. They're they're pretty hopeless, and un unless the development folks have the opportunity to begin to address these issues, um, th th there's a problem that's going to persist, persist for a very long time. I know when I was in the Congo uh, from, this was 2007 to 10, uh, we were watching very carefully um, extremist groups working in poor communities, yep. providing small loans, providing assistance of different kinds. And when you're desperate, um, yep. Looks pretty good. It's, it's something to do when, when it's hopeless. So I think focusing on the young populations now and particularly jobs for those folks, the youth, um, is really important. And it's development folks uh, who do that sort of stuff. And then you get to a point, you can't do it as best as without the security component to this. Particularly if you're dealing, if you, if you get into it early, it's the development folks have, and the diplomats, because uh, they're also working at the government level, uh, you can you can hopefully mitigate this, but uh, once you get past a certain point, uh, the military has to play a very important role with its all of its security. I just spent the last week at West Point uh, mm -hmm. at, a, at a conference, and we were talking about the most forgotten, <coughs> and those are in, in most places the IDPs. They have no yep. nobody to to, to uh, kind of advocate for them and no international standards. And so that group in particular needs attention. And again, the, the first responders to this are the development folks and the humanitarian folks to begin to address the, the causes. And unfortunately, these populations appear primarily in fragile states, which are the least able or willing to take care of them. So again, I think it's, it's gotta be a team effort of the diplomats, the development folks, and the military uh, to make it work. Just, uh, just quickly, um, we were talking a lot about sort of physical security, but there's also business risk aversion, right? And that's a lot of what we do um, uh, that I think has really changed over time, is seeing how we can mitigate risk for the private sector to invest in areas. When maybe we're not talking about sort of northeastern Nigeria right now, we could, but um, how do we get them to invest in, I don't know, a Zambia versus um, you know, versus South Africa, where they're going to be, you know, they're like, oh, we can definitely make a lot of money in, in South Africa. How do we say, hey, you know what? We'll mitigate your risk in Zambia. We think there's a lot of good money to be made there. Um, we have this um, tool called the Development Credit Guarantee, where we, um, we work with financial institutions to guarantee their risk. If their loan goes belly up and the person doesn't pay it back, then we will guarantee that loan. Um, it's a way for us to use a small amount of money to really impact um, a large amount of money, um, given that just a small guarantee can really unlock um, 10, 20 uh, times the amount of money of, of that guarantee. So there are lots of ways we mitigate risk on the private sector side as well. And that's really important. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Yeah, I have a question for both of you, actually, if you could go into what your specific responsibilities are and what you do in your job on a daily basis, just to have a more specific idea of yeah, what your job actually <laughs> looks like. Um, that's such a good question. Um, um, some days is more exciting than others. Um, uh, hmm. Well, okay, so this morning I had a little strategy meeting with my senior leaders about focusing on where going to be looking internally in the Bureau, how we, how we organize ourselves to m deliver on the global food security strategy that we submitted to Congress. So that's sort of internal organization, how that's going to work. And we also talked about how to engage more on what is our strategy, um, uh, engaging more on getting women entrepreneurs in the agri-food system, especially these small and medium enterprises. How do we get money to these entrepreneurs to be able to grow their businesses, to be able to deliver safe, affordable food to women? So we had a strategy session around that. That's something that's coming up as a big priority in this administration. And so we've got a couple of um, entry points. We've tasked out some work. Um, then I'm here um, this afternoon that I'm going back to, what's, uh, what's on my schedule? I have to look at, obviously I didn't get my schedule <laughs> right since I'm not here at the right time. So, <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, you know, sometimes I'm engaging with my boss to let him know, you know, what's happening. Something comes out of the news, he calls me up, what about X, Y, Z, explaining that. Um, engaging with our field. Right now we're doing country plans in each country um, to uh, see how, let's say, our, our program in Mali is delivering on the Global Food Security Act. I've got one that's sitting in my inbox. We had a, a call with uh, the Nepal mission to talk about their country plan. Of course, they feel very uh, close to that that program since I was out there for two years. Um, we gave them some feedback to make sure that their interventions were big enough to affect the zone. Um, anyway, so working on that, and I've got to clear some papers and, you know, that kind of thing. Sometimes I'm traveling to uh, meetings in far-flung locales. I don't know. How about you? <laughs> well, I, so I'll just talk about my time with the NGO right yeah. now. I, uh, and when I started with the International Medical Corps a couple of years ago, after I retired from the Foreign Service, I was sort of, um, it was an interesting job. I was running around making connections uh, and developing new programs for, for the International Medical Corps. And it was kind of nice, they were paying me to go see old friends. I would, uh, from my years, I spent a lot of That's time. That's probably knows everybody. Yeah. Well, you've been around forever. Um, so I would spend a lot of time in Sweden and Norway and Geneva and places with, with folks I worked with who were in the government there. Uh, to trying to find out if there's ways to do programs and that sort of thing, and with a bunch of government leaders I, uh, I knew. And so I was uh, trotting around the world, pretty much, uh, having a good time. Then, uh, like a non, and I mentioned this early on, uh, with uh, like a number of NGOs, compliance and uh, tracking of funds are becoming more and more important. And we were one of the organizations that got caught in Turkey a couple of years ago oh. with some bad some uh, yeah. corrupt um, companies and that sort of thing, and we were taken for a ride. And so compliance became a, uh, ethics and compliance became a very big thing for the International Medical Corps. So <laughs> in my case, I had just arrived in uh, Japan uh, from Washington and flying for a couple of days. And um, I got a call in the middle of the night, and, woke, and they woke me up, and it was the head of the organization, and said, you've got to take on this new thing. We've, we, you know, we've got to do something about this compliance. And I said, okay, okay, whatever. And I went back to sleep. I woke up the next morning and thought, what did I agree to here? <laughs> so I was, I've spent the past year setting up a compliance department in the mm -hmm. International Medical Corps, where we have compliance officers uh, in most of our countries, we have uh, people in our headquarters in Los Angeles, people here in Washington, people in split Croatia where we have a big office, our finance office. And it's focusing on making sure we're complying with local laws, our own regulations, U.S. laws, uh, the British, because we have a lot of funding from the U.K., and it's become a very important thing. And I, it, it struck me when I was in the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, we never talked about this sort of crap. Uh, stuff, things. <laughs> and uh, I was at, went to OFDA, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, some, a couple of months ago for a meeting, and there was a woman there, and she's on the compliance officer. I said, ah, so you're the compliance officer for OFDA. She's, no, no, just for these countries. They must have a whole bunch of them mm. now. And that was not an issue back in the, uh, when I was in OFDA in the 80s and 90s. 
And so now uh, it's a big part of development. There's incredible mm -hmm. scrutiny uh, by auditors and investigators from every donor government. And uh, we've, I've been with the British, uh, OCHA, um, the US obviously, the Australians, it is a big deal now. And so I spend most of my time focused on those sorts of issues. Uh, we have a big problem in Yemen right now, as everybody does, so I'm very focused on how our teams are performing there because we're getting a lot of money for that. I'm heading out to Ethiopia where we have some issues or that I'm concerned with the way we're doing some things. So I'm focusing on how, uh, not the actual you know, design of the programs, but now I'm looking at it from a, a compliance perspective to make sure um, one of the issues you have with NGOs, and particularly one that I work with, which responds to emergencies and all, primarily in war zones, is you know they got to get the job done. Well, yeah, uh -huh. but you got to follow the rules and regulations. When the old days with me, that wasn't quite that big of a deal. In uh, humanitarian organizations, pretty much got a pass yep, on audits and all this sort of stuff. Well, no more. We're treated the same as DynCorp for inspectors and auditors. So, yeah, we want to respond fast, but now we've got to make sure we do it properly. And so those are the things I sort of keep an eye on. And uh, we're responding in the Caribbean and Mexico yet from, from earthquakes and, and uh, hurricanes. And so, again, there's a rush to do things and get assistance to people, but we've got to make sure we're doing it the right way. And that's not necessarily so popular among the humanitarian NGOs. Yeah. But, uh, so that's what I do. Oh, over here. Hi, my name is Chloe Lubin, and I'm an intern at the Osgood Center for International Studies. I had a question regarding your um, career choices, because you started out in public health issues in Morocco, uh, switched to agriculture, food security, and so even, even though those are not disconnected topics, how did you decide to focus your career on agriculture and food security? And kind of as a follow-up question, why didn't you choose education um, and or any other topic, and what do you see the future of agriculture and food security be? So, I, I mean, part of it is sort of where your where your career goes. Um, I started out doing health in um, Peace Corps. Um, I actually started out as an English teacher, and then I started. I, I said, well, I actually think what's the biggest problem here is we're working on sort of basic public health issues, so I moved towards health education in the schools. And then um, I got my degree in sociology, PhD in sociology, where I focus on land tenure in rural areas and got really interested in um, um, how people use land in order to promote their livelihoods. And so I did my dissertation research in Mauritania, which I know is not where most people want to end up. But I spoke Arabic already, so that's where I went. And, um, and that led me to really start focusing on monitoring and evaluation. Um, as a sociologist, you're very, it's very data heavy. You do a lot of surveys and statistical analysis. And actually, that's how I got into development, was my, my ability to do survey and my field work that I was doing in Mauritania. And there was an NGO there that was getting funding from Food for Peace and needed someone to help them set up their monitoring and evaluation system. So that's what I did is I took those skills that I got from my PhD in sociology, which one would sometimes wonder maybe how transferable the skills were, but actually that data and an analytics piece was super important. And I set up a monitoring evaluation system and then I joined Food for Peace. So I started out actually as a, as a humanitarian officer um, doing food aid and also setting up for the development program some of these monitoring evaluation systems. So that's how you know you take opportunities as they come. And so uh, some people I think are more deliberate and make choices that you know they follow and some of us just grab things along the way. So uh, yeah, you, I don't know your story. I want to hear it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's very short. Uh, my career has been a mistake. Um, right. From from. Pretty much from the beginning, I was going to be a history professor. That's what I was going to teach, history. My field was colonial Latin American history. And uh, I couldn't find a job after all of that. It's not a real growing field, never was. And so a friend of mine worked on Capitol Hill. So I went to Washington, stayed with him for a few days. And I thought, you know, that might not be a bad idea. 
Um, my wife and I were living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina at the time. So I, the, the guy was single, so I slept on the floor of his efficiency apartment from Monday night through Thursday night. It was job hunting on Capitol Hill, and then I go home uh, to, to cha or at, uh, at Chapel Hill for the weekend, and I come back again. And I found a job working for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and it was great fun. Um, I uh, worked for a congressman from Minnesota, a guy named Don Fraser. And uh, I got there and he said, you're going to do human rights. I said, well, sure, <laughs> what do I care? That's uh, a job. Um, so I had the opportunity, though, to work with Hubert Humphrey and Edward Kennedy and some really great guys. I was paid by the House, but I was one of the few who did human rights in those early days. This was in the 70s. And it was great fun. And uh, then my Hubert Humphrey died. My boss ran for his job and lost the election. So I lost my job. But I had gotten to know some folks at AID, and they said, why don't you come over and work at AID? I thought, hmm, unemployment, AID? I'll do that. And I remember going home the first night to my wife, and I said, Linda, guess what? She said, what? I said, I'm a foreign service officer. She said, what's that? I said, I don't know. That's how they, I was sworn in as an auditor. That's how I came really? into AID. Oh, interesting. And I lasted a year, and then I switched into the regular part of AID, into the policy office, mm -hmm. focused on Africa, and uh, I wouldn't change a minute of it, but it was yeah. not anything well, I wait, had how planned. Long did, when did you get into OFDA? Well, I got into AID in 1979, and I went to Bolivia for five years. Uh, 85, I started in OFDA. Oh, so you had a whole career before that, yeah. I was at PRM for a couple of years, and then off to, but anyway, I, you know, I guess my advice is always don't plan too much. Exactly, just take what comes up. Ah, uh, there you go. What you love, and yeah, if you love it, you're gonna do well at it. Yeah. If you like hate it, oh, here's the slog, it's not gonna happen. That's right. So, yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanna hear more about her, not me. <laughs> so just a quick question, you, <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, you mentioned remote management of certain programs. Could you just walk through the process of what that is? Like heavily dependent on technology to keep in contact with the personnel in the conflicted area or? Well, I was talking about it in terms of uh, the NGO I work for. And that is your, your staff, I'll use Somalia, is about 95, we have about five or 6,000 people around the world. But 95% of them are local or third country nationals. And so in Somalia, we only have Somali staff. Um, our, our folks in uh, Nairobi, who are actually Brits, go in and out uh, on a, for a day or two at most and then come out. And it's the Somalis on the ground who are running things. So we're in contact with them daily through Skype, email, and all this sort of stuff. But we do not have expatriates on the, on the staff and on the ground. Uh, managing programs and working with with the local uh, with our local staff, um, they're they're pretty much on their own. We're taking advice and consultation with with the folks in Nairobi, but we're not uh, like in another program. You're all living together uh, and working together in the country. So that's that's sort of what I'm. That's what I meant. Yeah, and just to add on to that, I mean, I think having local staff manage programs is a lot of how we operate in very insecure environments. I mean, in Afghanistan, that's how we did it. Um, then you, there's also the piece of needing to sort of oversee and make sure things are going well. And so there's a lot of third-party monitoring where you bring in yep. another group that either uses local staff to go and check on what's going on. This is really that accountability piece, right? Yep. Um, and pro, it's programmatically to make sure that you can make adjustments to make sure you're being as impactful as possible, make sure the money is going where it's supposed to be going, that kind of stuff. Um, so the third-party monitoring is a big deal. And there's also increasingly use of some sort of geospatial data information to be able to monitor. And we're, we're pushing on that even in places that aren't insecure to see how we can more cheaply and quickly and routinely get information on what we're doing. Mercy Corps, again, I don't know why I mm -hmm. keep bringing up Mercy Corps, but in Nepal, they're using um, cell phone data to monitor sort of response to shocks. So with the theory that um, in Nepal, people use cell phone usage is very pervasive, even in the rural areas. Uh, and um, people have pay-as-you-go SIM cards. And so they can get the data from the SIM card sellers or whatever the, uh, to see you know what's the volume of people buying minutes on their phone and using minutes on their phone. And so if they're going through a shock, like there's a drought or there's some sort of like um, price 
issue that's causing them difficulty, you're going to see the cell phone minutes go down. And so that's a real sort of remote way to really track how people are doing. There's also remote sensing. They're getting a lot better at using sort of um, learning models to, to sort of mirror, you know, night lights with tin roofs with, you know, all those different things to get sort of an estimate of, of poverty. So we're, we're really pushing on that um, to be able to better to better monitor things remotely in all environments um, for cost, but it also really helps in these insecure environments as well. Yeah. Okay. And Beth, I don't know whether you want to address this. I've been to a couple of events here in the recent past talking about uh, Ray Tillerson's reorganization. There was that big fear-mongering for a while that USAID would be brought into DOS. I understand that that's been avoided. Um, but do you know what the status is? Has there been a specific administration decision that, yeah. yes, USAID yeah. is going to be an independent organization? And the follow-on question to that is, as you look at the six think tanks who have done studies of this, mm -hmm. all of them are recommending the same thing as far as uh, making USAID the central authority for all aid, raising the administrator to a cabinet level. Any chance of that stuff happening? So um, Deputy Secretary Sullivan in his testimony, uh, which is available online, said that a state aid merger is off the table. So yes, the administration has made a decision on that. That is not happening. And so um, within that, I think, I think that we're in a really good place. Uh, we have um, very strong support from Congress. Uh, we have uh, Ambassador Mark Green, who is amazing. He not only like, really knows this stuff, uh, has a very strong background and a really important uh, experience that he's bringing to this position. Um, he also has a lot of uh, strategic ideas and how to make USAID a better organization and also has strong connections throughout the legislative and administrative uh, executive branch. So I think that we're in a good place with all of this. There are a lot of sort of details that are still being worked out and redesigned, but I think, you know, Deputy Secretary Sullivan took merger off the table and I think what we're doing is seeing how we then get better at doing what we're doing. So, yeah. And I think another a big supporter of AID has been the military. So Huge supporter, yeah, yeah. Has, that, has the office, um, I worked with the office a couple of years ago, that had all of the COCOM liaison people in it. I mean, it was right there in your headquarters yeah. at the Reagan uh -huh. building. Uh, but I could tell you that the 05s and 06s manning those desks had some questions about really if they were adding value. I mean, there was kind of a, mm. there was still quite a wall um, based on right. historical and cultural differences yeah. between USAID folks and the military on site. Has, has that improved? Is there closer coordination at the headquarters or is the primary node of coordination still on the ground in the specific fragile nations like Afghanistan or perhaps, well, Afghanistan or the Sahel? So I I think that it, um, it's pretty context specific, and, um, but I, I, I will say one thing since I joined, and would really like your input on this too, but your perspective. Since I joined, the perception and relationship between USAID and the military has changed dramatically. Just, I think in the beginning, the eight officers were generally, if you could stereotype, very reticent to engage at all with the military. It was a little bit different on the emergency side because you don't really have a choice. But I think your typical eight officer um, was very resistant and wanted to really draw sort of boundaries between USAID and DOD. Um, I've seen that change over time where it's expected that we will all be at the table together and recognizing that we can't get this do done without the development, diplomacy, and defense at the table together and recognizing that we all have different strengths to bring to the table. So I think that um, the understanding and the value that we see in other organizations has really, really changed for the better. Yeah, it's, uh, the, first, uh, uh, the first contact really was very interesting. It was in uh, Turkey after the first Gulf War in 1990. And I was on a team going in and went into a refugee camp and I ran into the special forces in the camp. And they were immunizing kids. And I was kind of said, well, you know, what are you people doing here? And they said, well, how do you think we figure out what's going on? We talk to women, immunize the kids, you know, we, we just kind of blend in. And uh, that was then we were sent 
uh, after the Gulf War and when all the Kurds went up in the mountains by the Secretary of State Baker. And the military was coming out and Secretary of Defense sent uh, civil affairs and, and special forces guys into the mountains. So we didn't know we were gonna run into the military. That's the first time uh, in operations other than logistics, which is what the military normally did, that we ran into each other implementing programs. And there were NGOs who were horrified. Yeah. Uh, the UN was, were, was very schizophrenic. And that was the first time uh, the, the two were working together. And it's moved, as Beth said, miles uh, since then. It's far, far better uh, than, than in those days in 1990. So we've, we've moved a long distance in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, and I think the military understanding of development has really dramatically improved. My first experience working closely with the military was in southern Ethiopia, where we were working very hard to develop these community animal health worker programs, basically try to get sort of very community-based um, um, private veterinary services out to areas where government extensionists were never going to reach. And how do you get some guy in a village to be able to sort of treat your basic uh, diseases and have the basic vaccines and medicines that animals might need, given that this was sort of their lifeblood. And so, you know, it took a long time to really build these, these private sector outlets in very remote areas. And then just as we get them up and running, <laughs> the military would, military would come in and like vaccinate all the animals, which was sort of taking revenue away from these private sector actors that we'd, we'd, um, we'd painstakingly developed over years. And so I think that you don't see that kind of stuff happening anymore. There's a real understanding of needing to coordinate in advance and then understanding how each other does business, so. Yeah. Well, being very conscious of your time and yours. So I'm sorry I was uh, not conscious of your no, time. No, no, we, so. we were supposed to go till 12.30, so this worked just right. So please join me in thanking Beth for being here. Thank you all. This is great.